You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open our Bibles. We have three scripture readings this afternoon. Right now, let's turn to Paul's letter to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy, chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies, rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This afternoon, we once again give our attention to what the church confesses from Scripture and the Heidelberg Catechism. And we have arrived at question and answer 43. So let's now read that together. Question 43. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death... 
our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to Him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Beloved congregation of Christ Jesus our Lord, at the back of our book of praise we have a collection of 15 prayers. Perhaps you're familiar with that. Maybe not. These prayers have a long history in the Reformed churches. Most of them going back to the 16th century. And from there, some of them even go back further in some form or another, even to the early church. These prayers decidedly do not reflect the sensibilities of our age. Some people find the language of some of these prayers to be overly harsh. For instance, the third prayer is a public confession of sins and prayer before the sermon. And that prayer begins with these words, Heavenly Father, eternal and merciful God, we acknowledge and confess before your divine majesty that we are poor, wretched sinners. Poor, wretched sinners? Is that really what we are? Well, Catechism uses the same kind of language in question and answer 126 when it explains the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer regarding the forgiveness of our sins. And here I quote again, Do not impute to us wretched sinners any of our transgressions nor the evil which still clings to us. Are we really wretched sinners or is this just a little bit over the top? Doesn't this contradict what we confess here in question and answer 43? We say that we believe our old sinful nature is crucified and put to death. Well, that means it's done with, doesn't it? It's dead. So if our old sinful nature is dead... How can we still say, when we pray these prayers, how can we say that we are wretched sinners? These aren't abstract theological questions. These are real questions that people ask and people struggle with. Some have thought long on these questions. On the one hand, there are those who, having thought long on them, reject the language of our prayers and question 126. They believe that sinners are the wicked. Sinners are those who are under God's curse. That's not us. Yes, we sin, but we're not sinners. We have been redeemed by Christ. We are a new creation. They agree with many popular Christian writers today who call this idea of Christians being sinners a big untruth or, even more boldly, a big lie. But on the other hand, we also have those who have sensitive hearts and consciences. They're all too aware of their unworthiness before a holy God. They know that they sin. They have sinned. They keep on sinning. And they are sinners. This awareness makes them doubt and question and and wonder. 
They're down in the pits and they lack an assurance and they feel burdened when they hear those words, poor, wretched sinners, in our creeds and in our prayers. For all these people, wherever we find ourselves on the spectrum, it's important that we get these matters straight. What's at stake here is not merely an abstract point in theology. Considering loved ones, our comfort in life and death, and about how we live here and now before our God. We're not the first ones to consider these important questions. You'll find these things discussed repeatedly by Christians over the last 2,000 years. However, with the coming of the Reformation, there was finally a wide consensus on the answers to these questions, at least among those who took the Bible seriously. Beginning with Martin Luther, the Reformation churches held that man is at the same time justified and a sinner. Same time justified and a sinner. There was even a special Latin expression for that, simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. And if you want to know how that's spelled, it's in the liturgy sheet under the items for reflection for this afternoon's sermon. Simul justus et peccator. At the same time justified and a sinner. Luther and the other reformers simply went back to the Bible. They came to believe this truth by carefully reading the Scriptures, especially the letter to the Romans. This afternoon, let's follow in their footsteps. And we'll look at two crucial chapters. Two crucial chapters, Romans 6 and Romans 7. And through these chapters, we'll come to see that the language of our prayers and confessions is not at all at odds with what we confess from the Scriptures in question and answer 43. So I ask that you please open your Bibles with me now and let's read Romans 6, 1-14. to What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives... He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God 
as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to Him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Well, the first thing we need to do is acknowledge that for us, these are difficult passages. As many of you are discovering in your Bible studies, Romans as a whole has some difficult parts in it. And when we come to difficult passages, we need to remember some basic rules for reading and understanding the Bible. One of those basic rules is that we need to take into account the immediate context. Remember, a text without context is a pretext. All kinds of trouble happens when we don't remember to look at the context. So when we're here in Romans 6, we should be looking back to Romans 1 through 5, first of all. In Romans 1 to 3, Paul makes the point that all mankind is under the curse of sin. At the end of chapter 3 and up till the end of chapter 5, Paul explains how we can be right before a holy and just God. He says that it is only through faith in Christ. Justification. Justification, which is God's declaration of righteousness on account of Christ's work, that comes to us by faith in the Savior. So in Romans 5, right before the chapter we're looking at right now, Paul is deeply in a discussion regarding justification. Then at the end of chapter 5, we we find him teaching that grace abounds where sin abounds. And that is what leads to the question that we find at the beginning of chapter 6. So Paul, what you're saying is we should go on sinning, that grace may increase. See, whenever Paul preached the free grace of God in Christ, legalistic folks would get up on their high horse and accuse Paul of being an antinomian. Antinomian is someone who opposes or undermines the law of God. They said, if we're saved by grace and not by works, what's going to happen? People are going to live like the devil. Paul takes this question seriously. What does the doctrine of justification have to say to how we live? Does it mean that we can now just casually go on sinning? Don't worry, be happy? As if nothing has changed? Paul's answer is a strong negative. Our translation says, by no means. We also say, certainly not. May it never be. Why does he answer so strongly? It all has to do with our union with Christ. Mentions baptism in verses 3 and 4. Baptism is the sacramental picture of our union with Christ. It is the, the sign and seal of that union. As a seal, or as a sign rather, it points us to the fact that we are joined to Him, to Christ, in His death and resurrection. It's also the seal. It's the guarantee of these truths. The truth is, we are united to Christ. 
In verse 5, Paul says that means that we are joined with Him in His death and we will also be joined with Him in His resurrection. Verse 6 is the, the hinge on which this whole passage that we're looking at here turns on. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. The key to understanding this is to remember the context. Chapter 5 spoke of justification, which speaks of how God regards us. So when we read here that our old nature was crucified with Christ through our union with Him, we understand that to mean that from God's perspective, there is nothing in us any longer that deserves the curse of eternal wrath and judgment. We're no longer under the curse of sin because Christ bore that curse for us. And through our union with Him, we are right with God. All of our sins were imputed to Christ. They were passed on to Him. And all of Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. It's been passed to us. The result is that God now regards us as He regards Christ. Totally righteous. That's true. And it's beautiful, isn't it? It's wonderful, good news to know that. But how does that impact how we live? Remember, that's Paul's concern here in Romans 6. He wants to answer the objection that believing this is going to lead to evil living. He says, no way. That can't happen. Because believers are no longer slaves to sin. They are united to Christ. And what believers need to do in their daily walk of life, it's so simple. This, this, this chapter is complicated. I agree. But what it's telling us to do, in a nutshell, is very simple. Fix your eyes on Jesus. As it says in verse 11, we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. He is the one we're joined to. The slavery and dominion of sin has been broken. And so believers are now slaves of God, slaves of righteousness. And that's why Paul says in verse 14 that sin shall not be your master. And so to, to summarize the argument, God regards us as justified. We also have to regard ourselves in the same way when it comes to daily life. Be who you are. And the essence of all this is captured in our catechism in question and answer 43. Our answer is basically a, a paraphrase of this part of Romans. Because of Christ's death, our old nature is crucified and put to death and buried with Him. The result? The evil desires of our flesh are no longer going to rule over us. There's a new master that we serve, and His name is Jesus. It's in Him that we are right. It's because of Him that we are thankful. And now we live our lives in such a way that we show ourselves thankful. We show that we love Him, that we will be forever grateful to Him for all His benefits. And the greatest benefit that we have received from Christ 
is peace with God. Romans 5.8 While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2.14 tells us that though previously we were at war with our Creator, Jesus Christ is our peace. All believers can know for certain that there is peace with God. The, the external battle is over. The peace has been won. The peace is here. But brothers and sisters, this is a peace which starts another war. We have peace with God. But now we face the struggle for holiness. Our justification leads us to battle for sanctification. Though the curse of sin has been conquered, there remains a struggle with the power of sin. And so offering ourselves to God as sacrifices of thankfulness, it's not as easy as it sounds. And that brings us to Romans 7. Let's now take our Bibles again and turn to Romans 7, 13-25 and read those verses together. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind... I'm a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now you read this and you wonder if this is the same author. This chapter, Paul seems to be singing a different tune. And this has understandably confused many people. In chapter 6, verse 18, he said that Christians were set free from sin and are now slaves of righteousness. But now he says in verse 14 of chapter 7 that he is unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. 
He says that he can't do the good he wants to do, but he keeps doing evil. Verse 24, he says that he regards himself as a wretched man, a man who still needs to be rescued. This seems to contradict what he was saying in chapter 6. And of course, everyone who is interested in this will agree that there are no real contradictions in Scripture. So some believers read this passage and they conclude, well, Paul must be talking about a different time in his life. So chapter 7 was before he became a Christian. Or, some say, chapter 7 is referring to a different kind of Christian. What we'll call a carnal or a fleshly Christian. A worldly Christian. This is sort of a a spiritual autobiography, they say, and and Paul made the move from being a carnal Christian to being a victorious Christian. He went from being a Romans 7 believer to a Romans 8 believer. And so some say that also has to be our goal. We have to make it our goal to become victorious Christians. However, the long-established reading of this passage says something different. The Reformers and the Reformed churches followed the ancient reading of this passage, which says that Paul was speaking in Romans 7 about himself at this very moment that he was writing to the Roman believers. In other words, Paul is writing about the normal Christian life, about the struggle faced by every believer. In every believer... Remnants of the old nature remain. And believers have to struggle and have to war against those remnants. I'm going to have to ask you to listen carefully here. This is not easy material. I understand that. But it will be easier if you do listen and pay attention right now. While the curse of sin has been definitively dealt with in justification. The power of sin still has to be dealt with in sanctification. Let me repeat that. While the curse of sin has been definitively dealt with in justification, the power of sin still has to be dealt with in sanctification. Now that sounds abstract, so let me illustrate. Imagine... A man in prison. Let's say this man has spent his whole life, virtually all his life in prison. He's been there for 25 years or more. The only thing he knows how to do is to live as a prisoner, to have somebody else tell him what to do and at what time and and so on. And one day comes, the day he's long been waiting for, And he's set free from prison. And as he comes out of prison, he doesn't know what to do. He's spent 25 or more years living as a prisoner. And now he's free. But all he knows is the way of life as a prisoner. And it's only with the passage of time, as time moves on, that he learns to break free from the power of life as a prisoner. You see what I mean? The curse was when he was in prison. He was dealing with making the payment for his crime. 
But after he was released from prison, he still had to deal with the power of that, of all those years in prison. That's what we're talking about here. The curse of sin dealt with in justification. The power of sin dealt with in sanctification. Another way of saying that is that justification is an accomplished event. But sanctification is an ongoing process. Or you could also say the external war has been settled. There is peace with God. But the war within still rages and will rage until the day of our death. And let's be clear that this battle is not between equals. It's not that Christians are equal parts, old nature, new nature. Rather, it's the new nature against the remnants of the old nature. Further, Scripture is clear that the struggle against the old nature for believers is one of progressive victory. That we may not always see it, may not always understand how it's progressing, it is. And so even with what we read here in Romans 7, we have to be clear that acknowledging this struggle as being the normal Christian life, it's not defeatism. Let's now consider some of the reasons why we should read Romans 7 as describing the normal Christian life, as describing the, the struggle that all Christians face. A few moments ago I mentioned that one of the most important things to remember when reading and studying the Bible is context. When we talk about context, we're not only speaking about the immediate context, the verses before and after the passage, or the, the, cha- or the chapter or the, the book. When we deal with difficult passages, we have the context of the whole Bible to help us out. This has traditionally been summarized with that saying, let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's a good saying, one we should all keep in mind. And so when we deal with Romans 7, we should also look elsewhere in the Bible for help. And so we not only consider the immediate context, but also the broader context of all of God's revelation. And as we do that, we come to a passage like what we read from 1 Timothy 1, especially verses 15 to 16. There Paul describes himself as being the worst of sinners. And when he says this, he uses the present tense. He does not say, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I was the worst. You know, back then when I was a Pharisee. He could have said that. He could have used the past tense, but he didn't. He said, of whom I am the worst. Present tense. He's describing how he views himself at the moment he is writing. And this parallels what we have in Romans 7, where Paul calls himself a wretched man. Though it's, a, it's an awful truth, Paul has no qualms about calling himself a sinner, while at the same time being justified in Christ. And as an aside, here it needs to be pointed out that there are three different ways that the Bible uses the word sinner. Three different ways. First, the word sinner is used to describe those who are objectively wicked in the eyes of God. 
under the curse. In this sense, Christians are not sinners. Second, it's used to describe those who are wicked in the eyes of men. We see that usage quite a bit in the Gospels where Jesus is said to associate with sinners. Third, the word sinner is used to describe those who still struggle with a sinful nature. Even though they may be objectively righteous in the eyes of God. That is the sense in which Christians can still be described as sinners. And that's the sense that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 1. Let's also consider what Paul says in Philippians 3. In Philippians 3, Paul speaks about his pre-conversion life. Before Christ grabbed him, Paul thought he was doing pretty good. He saw himself as being blameless. When you read Philippians 3, there's no struggle like what we read about in Romans 7. So we have to conclude that the struggle that's described in Romans 7 came after Paul was converted. Still with the broader context, there's a parallel passage in Galatians 5. In that chapter, Paul is clearly describing the experience of all Christians. Chapter 5, verses 16 to 17, has Paul encouraging the Galatians to live by the Spirit, and in so doing, they will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. When believers do not live by the Spirit, they are gratifying the desires of the old nature. They can do that. They're not supposed to, but they can. And they do. And then in verse 17, he describes the struggle. And he says that the Spirit is contrary to the sinful nature. He says, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. Here again, this is all present tense. This is a present reality in all Christians, the normal Christian life. There's a conflict between the new nature, which is through the Holy Spirit, and the desires of the old sinful nature, or what we could call the the remnants of the old nature. This directly parallels what we read in Romans 7. Believers are both justified and sinners at the same time. And so the broader context supports the traditional Reformed reading of Romans 7. And so does one more basic rule of proper Bible reading. Whenever we read the Bible, we should stick with its natural literary sense. As one writer puts it, Paul did not play literary games with his first century readers. He was writing to be understood. Let me make clear what we're getting at. In the first verses of Romans 7, Paul uses the past tense everywhere. He also uses the past tense when he's talking about himself. But in verses 14 to 25, all of a sudden, he switches and he goes into the past tense. Or in the present tense, rather. 
if he was speaking about his pre-conversion life or about some kind of carnal Christian period in his life, we would expect to have him go on using the past tense. Then he would say something like, what a wretched man I was. I was a slave to sin in my sinful nature. He doesn't do that. He uses the present. It's only natural to read it as a description of what he is presently like. To see it in any other way does injury to the natural literary sense of the passage. Loved ones, love it in the Lord. This is not an insignificant, petty matter. A little debate that doesn't affect our lives. Understanding this pass, this, this point is crucially important. Let me explain why. Here again, you have to listen carefully. God in His wise providence has left these remnants of the sinful nature in us. Romans 7.13 tells us why. So that sin might be recognized as sin. He has done this so that in this life, as Christians, we would continually fix our eyes on Christ. Not only from the beginning of our Christian life, whenever that might be, that we say, yes, I believe in the Lord Jesus, and then from there on we're, we're kind of left on our own. No, so that through our whole life we would constantly be looking to Christ and to Him alone. As we grow in grace, more and more our eyes are opened to the defects and weaknesses that still cling to us. More and more we see the sinfulness of sin. Our vision becomes more and more clear. It horrifies us. More than that, it makes us see how much we need Christ still right now. We run to Him because it's only in Him that we have hope. It's only in Him that we have salvation. When we look to Him, we have the assurance that sin has been already defeated for us. And soon we'll be wholly and utterly defeated in us. Seeing ourselves as justified sinners is crucial because it keeps bringing us to the cross and to the Savior who hung on that cross. Knowing this biblical truth forces us outside of ourselves and drives us to the Lord Jesus. However, if we, are, if we see ourselves as simply justified, forget about all that talk about being a sinner and wretchedness and just leave all that out. What happens when we grow and we see that sin is a, is a bigger monster in our lives than we initially thought? If I come to see a sinful nature against which I have to struggle, sinful desires in me, what am I going to conclude? I must not be a Christian at all. Or at best, I must be a second-class Christian. There can't be much hope for me. Is such a person going to be thankful? Is such a person going to be making much out of God in their lives? 
I think not. Or what happens is that we deceive ourselves into thinking that everything about the old sinful nature has been totally eradicated. That we're, we're totally free. We don't have a sinful nature against which we have to struggle our whole life. Be too crass to say it. But we're thinking that we're actually doing pretty good. While everybody else is groveling and confessing their sins, we can hold our chins high. We can carry on with confidence. All that's left for us is to praise God. But what does it say in 1 John 1 verse 8? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And a little further in verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His Word has no place in our lives. And if we have sinned, we are sinners. That's reason to humble ourselves before God and constantly fix our eyes on Christ just as the Israelites in the wilderness fixed their eyes on the bronze snake. That's reason to also take seriously what it says in 1 John 1 verse 9. And Hold on to these words. If we confess our sins, which we will do, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. God's promise. Christ alone is our righteousness and holiness and sanctification before God. Beloved brothers and sisters, we need to read the Scriptures properly and we need to be honest with ourselves. The reality is that we are justified in Christ. Through His redeeming work, we are right with God right now. That's reality. It's glorious good news, which we should all go away from here this afternoon praising God for. Yet the reality is also that we all have to struggle with sin. Consistently offering ourselves as sacrifices of thankfulness, that does not come easy. That's because of the remnants of the old sinful nature. And realizing this reality and being honest about it doesn't bring us to despondency and despair and, and, and leave us in the dirt. Instead, realizing it brings us closer to Christ. Romans 7.25 Who will rescue me from this body of death? And what's Paul's answer? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We flee to Him because we need Him not only for our justification, but also for our sanctification. Not only for the beginning of our Christian life, but for the whole of our Christian life. Of ourselves, we're hopeless and helpless. It's only when we're looking to Christ, when we are united to Him in faith, that we will make progress in holiness. And the fact that the struggle is there It's not a sign of defeat. That's a proof that Christ is indeed working sanctification in us. It's the normal Christian life. And so as we go through this life, 
we will have this struggle, this conflict. It causes us pain and it frustrates us. On the one hand, justified. On the other hand, still a sinner. We have a peace that has started a war. And what the war does is make us call out to God for the final act of the drama of redemption. Because, beloved, the drama is not over. Christ still has work to do in us and for us. He still must return with the clouds of heaven to inaugurate the age to come. Look for His coming. Because when He comes, the consequences of what happened on Golgotha on Good Friday will be fully realized. In the absence of sin, the fullness of both righteousness and peace will greet each other. Let's pray. Lord God, our Savior on high, we thank You that through Christ's death our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with Him. We thank You that His death brings us to a right standing before You. We praise You that we are justified. Help all of us, every single one, to know and believe this truth. We pray for Your help for those who doubt and who lack assurance. Help all of us to constantly embrace Christ as Savior. At the same time, Father, we also know ourselves to be sinners, even miserable sinners, wretched men and women. We all have the remnants of our old nature against which we have to struggle our whole life. Lord Jesus, we flee to You in the midst of this struggle. We turn to You for more grace and Your redeeming power. Have mercy upon us, sinful people. You have saved us from the curse of sin. Please also save us from its power this day and each day. With Your Spirit, we pray that You would please continue to work out our sanctification. We ask that You would lead us in paths of holiness so that the evil desires of our flesh no longer reign in us, but that we offer ourselves to You as sacrifices of thankfulness. Father, there's just so much grace that You've shown to us. We plead with You for more. And we ask it for the glory of Your name, because we long to see You exalted. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we want to see You praised through us. We pray in the name of Christ, who is our justification and sanctification. Jesus, who is our righteousness and holiness. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.